And welcome back to One More Go, the first One More Go of 2014. We took a wee break there to make some improvements, but we're back and we we're going to have another another year's worth of uh, wonderful retro video game content for you. Absolutely, this is this is what we're calling season two. We've been we've been working hard in the One More Go labs, tinkering well into the night to come up with stuff. That will revolutionise your listening experience. New features, mm. new designs, new recording setups. We've unfortunately not been recast. No, it's the same old, the same old two. Which is, of course, myself, Barry Topping, and sitting opposite me, it's Nicole Hay. There he is. Uh, we've got a new recording location. First of all, we're now recording in my bedroom. So you know, after we've recorded, we can just fire into the bed there uh, absolutely it's it's cozy it's it's warm it makes me feel like i know barry a bit better because he never actually let me in here before he always said it was off limits and i think probably the reason for that is his uh 360 sits in here and that is it's giving me the heebie-jeebies i don't mind saying dusty unused 360 black 360 with a gray hard drive that's a mark of quality right there so yeah, like we said, we got some new features, uh, the first of which is going to be a console retrospective. We wanted to make a retrospective that was a monthly thing that wasn't as patronising as your Avril... As your Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne. Wasn't as patronising as your average console retrospective. A lot of them can just be kind of Wikipedia articles like, this happened, then this came out. So we wanted to try and make one that was a bit more specific to the things that we loved about these consoles so um, I'll, I'll be starting that off this month with the Game Boy um, that'll be a monthly thing how much did you love the Game Boy Barry? <sighs> quite a bit and you'll get to hear about that not right now though we'll, we'll get to that we'll get to that later on all um, things in good time another new feature is a uh, Game Club which we won't be talking about right now because that has its own lovely section so yeah, I'm not going to do the joke there's yeah, an obvious the joke. joke to do about Game Club we'll just say it's like a book group except for games and you'll, you'll all get involved, and you'll all be happy, so please keep listening, please. Um, We're also going to talk about a couple of games, just to keep things um, fairly similar. You know, we wanted to keep something about... the. We wanted it to be about games. Yeah, we wanted to keep something that got our massive audience on board so far, so you didn't just turn off after the first intro. Massive audience. Yeah. What are you talking about? I'm going to talk about the Sega Saturn's Burning Rangers. Ah, uh, Burning Rangers. I will be talking about uh, Kirby Superstar for the SNES of course Barry doing a SNES platformer the more things change the more they stay what we used to love and still love and hope you'll love to forever and ever join us so you may have seen um, if you've been on our Tumblr or our Twitter we have a slightly new look which we have to thank Mr. Mechagamezilla for he did us a wee uh, I say a wee did us, did us a, whole, a whole redesign we spoke to our marketing managers and they were like boys it's time for a new look. It's time for your uh, web presence to look like it was designed by a professional adult rather than a chimp that had had cinder blocks taken to its head. You could do a haircut, though, I have to say. If, if we're rebranding, <laughs> I think it's time for a haircut. Look. This is the new. One of the advantages of being off for two months is that so much news has piled up. So much. <laughs> the stuff we're talking about is fairly inconsequential. <laughs> this is the ki- but isn't that the whole problem with video game news? Well, yeah. I mean, we felt our news was important enough to, to give it its own section, but is it really? Nah. That, this is why you listen to one more go for the for the the puff the video gaming puff pieces or, or the hard hitting journalism, depending on how you regard video game news. Exactly. So uh, one of the things that came up was um, on Polygon recently was the the article about uh, SNES Aladdin versus Mega Drive Aladdin, something which has been a debate raging for many years. <laughs> oh, um, 
it was certainly a debate at the time, but I don't, I'm not even sure it was that much of a debate. I mean, I got caught up in the whole "is the Thes better than the Mega Drive anyway" thing, which yeah, like it happens because video games has and always will be uh, an, a hobby dominated by a people battle. who are spiritually 13 years old. Oh, and you see it on paper, I mean, the SNES one, of course, made by Capcom, and the Mega Drive one made by Sega and Virgin. It's like, you see that on paper, I mean, it's kind of obvious who you're going to go for, but maybe not so much anymore. No, well, even at the time, I mean, the the one thing that um, the Mega Drive one has going for it is that it was uh, one of the first games made by Dave Perry at Shiny Entertainment, uh, obviously, it was published by Virgin. I'm not sure exactly why the different consoles had co- such completely different versions, but uh, the nice thing about Shiny Entertainment, they were very famous at the time for their lovely, lovely animation, which they managed to squeeze out of those 16-bit consoles. And they basically sourced the animation directly from Disney animators. Mm. Um, I never played the SNES version. I was n- not that aware. Like I, I thought they were just... It, it played like pretty much... Every other Capcom SNES game, which isn't a bad thing, like Capcom Disney SNES game. But you didn't have that the, quite the fluidity. Of well, the as Mega as, Drive as Mikami himself said, um, you know, you got a sword in the Mega Drive one, so that's why. Very that's important. why, in hindsight, it's better. That's why it was more cutting edge. So I mean, that that's kind of to put. It almost feels like it's put an end to the debate. Yeah, especially as like you know, like Mikami said, um, uh, if I hadn't made the the SNES version, the Mega Drive one's the one that I wanted to play. And like uh-huh. Dave Perry's response was just sort of like, "Well, I'm obviously going to be biased because I think ours is better, but I suppose if I hadn't made the Mega Drive one, I'd play the SNES one." Like trying to sign McManimus, but inside just sort of going. <laughs> <laughs> Do you say McManimus? <laughs> yeah, that's a Scottish <laughs> that wrestler. When you're like Vince McMahon, <laughs> um, something. About about that that I realised though is every single person in the comments was pretty much like finally vindication. <laughs> like there'd been all these like closet Mega Drive folk who'd been quiet for years, not wanting to publicly reveal their shame for thinking that the, yeah. the Mega and now they're yes, justice for the Mega Drive. It's almost as if being a Mega Drive owner gave you a huge inferiority complex well, all through. From the way the 90s. people were talking about it in the comments, it's like this retrospectively meant that the Mega Drive won the console war. Fucking Nintendo is doomed. Yeah, like, yeah because on, of this one two hundred word article. Sonic is better than Mario, alright? So what else is happening? What else is happening? Well, um, if you want to play retro video games, and I suppose you might, um, we at One More Go have been banging the drum for the Retron 5, which is go- definitely going to happen. Definitely, definitely, definitely going to happen, happen at some definitely. point. But if you want a stopgap, um, Retrobit have made the Super Retro Trio um, already available as the Super Retro Double or duo? I think it might be duo. It's called. But, um, I want a super retro trio, and I want one now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's you not can quite ha- as catchy. Like you can have one in March. Um, yeah. For well, well, we'll see. They're saying March. Um, Retrobit's own website is surprisingly scant on details, but uh, it's being reported that in March you will be able to buy a nice wee plasticky machine for sixty nine ninety nine US dollars. That will play NES, SNES, and Mega Drive games, and for a further forty four ninety nine US dollars, you'll get an adapter which will allow you to play Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games. 
it looks nice, um, a little bit limited, a little bit cheap, a little bit plasticky, but, um, you know, it might actually exist by the time you listen to this podcast, which will be a huge advantage over yeah, the Retron 5. pretty exciting. Um, and it's got some nice SNES-ish looking pads. But I Really, really had some appreciation over the last few months, again, for playing stuff on their relevant consoles, because, like, since, since RetroArch came out, um, I think that's pretty much the best emulation solution there's ever been. And especially because you can run it on a PS3 now, it's like RetroArch is amazing. But I think there's there's still there, we've said it before, but there's still that experience you get from playing something on an actual console as a hardware game when playing it with the right pad, so on and so forth. Which is um, an interesting thing that kind of got brought up with um, a cl- uh, an article on the Onions AV Club uh, by a guy called uh, Bob McKee, Bob Mackey, possibly. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that surname, um, but it was a really um, interesting read. He was talking about the uh, the turnerization of uh, retro games background. Mm. Um, he, what he's referring to uh, in the eighties, um, Ted Turner, who's a, a big media mogul in the, the United States, uh, launched his cable channel. Um, it didn't have a lot of money for filling it up during the day, so what he did is he bought the rights to loads and loads of old black and white movies because they were very, very cheap. But he, like, research showed that people didn't, like, if they flicked on the TV and they saw black and white, they pretty quickly turned off again. So he invested in this technology which colourised old black and white movies, and it, it just looked horrible, just sort of, like, muted pastel hues against, like, this image that had been lit and constructed to be really highly contrasting and, and things like that. Mm. It just looked terrible, but he persisted with it and people start to use the, the phrase turnerization pejoratively to mean, you know, a sort of desecration of something right. to try and drag it into the uh, the modern era. I can and, see where this is going. Yeah, well, the, the article just asks about, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of remakes happening uh, these days, especially on, like, uh, mobile phone formats where rather than just take the original ROMs and make them playable they're quote unquote updating them mm. to make them palatable for uh, modern audiences and uh, the ones that uh, Bob points out is suffering the most of the Final Fantasy remakes yeah they really are just like new HUDs like sort of smoothed off graphics and yeah, it's the it's the sprites that look the worst. The mm-hmm. character sprites look terrible, like really bad. Um, so you know, he asks, like, you know, is should we be doing this? I mean, like, is it is it destroying these games, not presenting them the way that they were played at the time? It's something that Square only adopted recently because when they were porting their games to the Game Boy Advance and that, like, even even I mean, I think it all went. When they started porting stuff to the PSP, I think that was maybe the first example when they'd used these kind of updated character models. They're HD, if you will, sprites. Mm-hmm. But like even the Game Boy Advance ports, they still stuck with the original graphics. So I'd love to know at what point they decided, right, fuck the original graphics, we'll just start doing this. So there's a certain point where you think possibly shit. people like playing games on the Game Boy Advance would be still... In a way, used to pixel art and used to like sort of blocky characters. Um, they, in a way that, that maybe mobile phone audiences aren't. Yeah, I wonder if they think that people will see pixels as bad graphics and not play something. Which is crazy because, because you know, like I, anyone with eyes can see that the aesthetic the FF appeal. The ports look terrible. They look horrible. But that's the interesting thing about um, Mackey's article. Like, 
you know, he sort of seems to take the the position that any sort of update is inherently bad, but I don't think that's true. I think it's bad if it's done badly. But video games can lend themselves to HD remakes, and we have seen some well, good course, ones, yeah. um, just like ones that we talked about on the show before, like the the Knights HD remake uh, that you can get on uh, PSN and XBLA looks lovely. Um, but that is the advantage of coming from a game that doesn't look great these days because no. of just you know the the way we've advanced 3D compared to the way we've advanced sprites. But then you look at something like the Sonic update, which does sort of like convert it into widescreen for use on you know like iPhone fives and things like that, and just rather than stretching out, like it's it's been thought through, yeah, and it looks nice and the, takes advantage. The of biggest the, issue here is that Square are lazy. It's like. So, I mean, if you search for Final Fantasy on the App Store, there are so many, like, cynical cash grabs mm-hmm. on there that they've just stuck the name Final Fantasy on it. Stuff that's just built from, like, collections of old sprites and that, and it's, like, full of microtransactions and stuff. And Square are a bad example of everything, to be honest. <laughs> ve- they have very little working in their favour these days, and you're right, they, they have become the, the, the Ted Turner of video games. Which is a shame. Right, it is. But a bit of a a bit of happier news. Well, a bit more interesting news mm. to to round off. Um, somebody has started a quite remarkable experiment using the uh, Twitch streaming service, which has been a a favourite of video games and uh, bored drunk men in Ireland uh, for for many years. Um, someone has got a Twitch server hooked up to. Uh, a ROM emulation of Pokemon Red, and they're using the chat facility on the stream to have everybody watching it put in directional and button commands to directly control the game. And it's a Rami, but my God, it's compelling. It's been going for for 10 days now. When I first started watching it, I think there was about 15,000 people uh, playing it, and now that number is like quadrupled many times over. It's like ridiculous amount of people on it now, but it's pretty good. Um, I think it's become less entertaining as more people have got on it because I mean, like there's been points now where progress has been agonising when you have a hundred thousand people all typing different directions. I mean, there was one point where I think like them. Where they were, they were stuck at a ledge for like six hours, basically, because they just kept. Because you know what I mean. You get people who think, "Oh, it's funny. We'll do that again." People comes on, they're like, "Oh, well, we'll make them go and do this bit again." And then suddenly, twelve hours have passed, and it's not funny anymore. But I, c- I don't even see that it can be that organised because the way it works, there's like a minute delay between you putting in your commands and it Aye. executing because there's that much of a delay in the chat anyway for to allow moderators to go in. Like, they can't remove that from the, the sort of standard Twitch interface. Plus, you know, you've got, like, thousands of people at once, and even if everyone's trying to play it proper and they all sort of go, right, we need to press up at this moment, If depending on where you are, if, like, you get 100 commands to go up all at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, but remarkably, they are progressing. They've Making got progress. Well... Gym badges, they've got... Just caught Zapdos... That's what's quite exciting. I can't catch Zapdos. I know. The the thing, some things that have been kind of funny, that at least a lot of unique moments, like when they released Charmeleon, when he was like two levels before evolving <laughs> into Char- Charizard, um, and stuff like teaching a Rattata bubble beam, I remember being 
particularly entertaining as well. There's also some interesting wee culture sort of building up because they've got, for instance, the the helix fossil right at the top of the inventory. You say culture, but you mean memes is what you mean. You say interesting <laughs> culture, but that's not what you mean. Well, a sociologist could probably argue this into the into the night, but you know, I use Tumblr. I'm going to call it culture. Okay, you do. Yeah, aye, so he keeps on looking at the the helix fossil. He'll like spend six hours like SS going around as well. It's a classic. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. Like Barry alerted it to me when it had been going for about a day. I watched it for five minutes and I was like, right, I think I get the joke. This will be fine. This will right. be dead within a week. But no, it's like like you say, it's grown and grown. Um, the more people join it, the more the more frustrating it becomes, which is why they've introduced this anarchy versus democracy system, which is basically where people can vote for a, a democracy democracy system where you know the most popular direction is what gets used, but no one ever votes for democracy because people people like anarchy. Absolutely. So whether they'll ever complete it or not, we'll we'll see. But the thing is, is like as they get further into the game, they've managed to get less and less done. So by the time they get to the Elite Four, it's probably going to be months. Yeah, well, I mean, people will surely lose interest and that'll help it. But it did get me thinking, like, this is more or less the only type of game where this would work. Um, where, you know, there's nothing's based on reactions. And, you know, your your commands are... Your your command list is so, so simple. Like... Um, GRP, GRPGs in general, but probably Pokemon in particular, is like the only game where I could really see this working. I couldn't think of anything else. In many, in, in many ways, Pokemon works better in terms of entertainment because there are so many moves a Pokemon mm-hmm. learn that don't do any damage, yeah. which leads to a lot of long battles of constant sand attack. You know? <laughs> um, but it did make me wonder. I mean... Like the people who are well into Pokemon have known that the main game isn't really the game uh-huh. for quite some time. But does it challenge the idea that you need any skill to play a JRPG if thousands of people hurling what is essentially random commands? Because once you get that many people hurling commands at something, it's indistinguishable from random input. And they're still playing the game and being reasonably successful at it. Well, I don't think Pokemon can be applied as... like. All JRPGs. I don't really think. I don't think Pokemon takes much skill to complete the game. But you're right. That's not the game. You know, for a lot of people, it is. But the real meat of Pokemon is other trainers, mm-hmm. which it definitely takes skill for. Yeah, or at least knowledge. At least intention. You can't right. randomly do it unless you can. I'd love to see what team they've got if they actually do complete the Elite, the elite Four and then you put it in a battle. I think there are some people that assume Pokemon is just down to it, or you pick a command and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but for anyone that's ever played what I will kind of tongue-in-cheek call a high-level Pokemon battle... No, no, you, you call it that. Get right. on your high horse. There's a lot more to it than that. Like, But a lot of JRPGs there aren't. You could probably play blindfolded, but... Cool stuff. Oh, but Pokemon's I, I, about as... I just remembered something. It wasn't mm-hmm. on the agenda. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, just change the subject completely. You see, a guy did um, a run through Super Mario Brothers to get the lowest score possible. Ah, I did. I saw that. That's that's an impressive inversion. Is like the the sort of normal, uh, completely on the spectrum obsession with getting pixel perfect runs through mm. old video games. But that's great. This is a guy who worked his way through um, SNES Super Mario Brothers. NES Super Mario Brothers making sure he didn't collect any coins, didn't kill any enemies, finished the level with no extra time and jumped on the lowest 
uh, point as a flagpole possible all the way through the game. So he completed it with just 500 points of a score. Jings. Um It took him several tries. Uh, apparently there's one incredibly difficult jump later on in the game where it's almost impossible not like to live but not collect a coin. And he's talking about getting it absolutely pixel perfect. Uh, and You know, this is stuff people do. Right, Nickel, Burning Rangers, you've you've you know, you've got a, another another chance to pitch the Saturn to our listeners here. Yeah, this is gonna be a successful pitch for the Saturn. Nah. Uh, um starting on such a negative, it's psychonauts all over again. God, it so is. It so is. Right. Well to begin with, let's let's just couch the song in terms I do like this game. It is fun to play, it's enjoyable, but my goodness is it flawed for the time and for revisiting it. But let's let let's dwell on the good things first of all. Tell, let's, tell us about Burning. Give us a bit of back a background on Burning Rangers. Let's go in the facts. It was developed in 1998 for the Saturn by Sonic Team. Mm. It was their um, I guess this would be their fourth sort of uh, attempt at a different major different IP after Sonic and Restar and mm. Nights into Dreams. But yes, it's future firemen. The idea is is that you are some point in the distant future with uh, firemen are basically superheroes with uh, rocket packs in their back so they can go burling the rings everywhere. I think, I think everywhere. This, this is a great, great concept. Like, futuristic anime firefighters. I'd like to see them, you know... I mean, why why stop at firemen? Like, get, like, fucking posties and bin, <laughs> bin men and that. Like, bin men dotting around the sky in their There's uh, definite packs. potential for superhero anime bin men. Like, absolutely. <laughs> Let's start this or recording re- refuse, right now. Refuse collectors, I believe, is the. Let's start. Rec- let's start developing this right now. That's right, like. So this is what's going to save the Wii U. So uh, how does this? So t- tell us about these. Uh, these firemen. What, how do, how does this game? What's the gameplay like? Well, the gameplay is um, the every level is like a situation where you've got a large structure, large three D structure that you've got to explore. Um, some disaster has occurred, and there's fire spewing out of the walls everywhere. Um, and there's uh, people who are who are uh, trapped, and you've got to to grab a hold of them and transport them out to safety. Mm-hmm. Um, every uh, character, the way you fight the fires, you don't have a hose. You've got like a sort of energy uh, laser sort no. of thing that if you shoot the fire, it turns it into crystals, which you collect, which uh, power your shield. And the crystals behave very much like rings in Sonic. Um, you gain a certain amount. If you take a hit, then all your crystals fly away from you and you've got a limited time to try and recover them mm. to, to keep going. Um, but yeah, like um, it's it's really great fun, actually. Like with The actual game and the actual concept of it is great. You're, you're basically exploring, like I say, these, these large um, cavernous uh, areas. There's a lot of risk-reward going on because... Um, there's a constant meter at the top called your limit, which is like basically how damaged or how perilous the the environment is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of going up from not percent to hundred uh, percent, and putting out fires, sort of reducing the risk on the structure, keeps that limit as close to zero as possible. So while there is a sort of timed element, that the longer you're in the environment, the more dangerous it gets. If you take use that time well to explore and find fires and extinguish them it reduces things yeah there's sort of 
So when you rescue all survivors, is that you complete a level then, or is it when you put out all the fire? No, um, the, every level is linear, and there is like a sort of certain storyline. So you can't just go from point A to point B. Yeah, the thing about storyline is I noticed there's like constant dialogue as well. Yeah, yeah, there is, is there cool. is. You're in like um, the idea of um, it seems like sort of like it's fully voice acted, pretty much, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, well, there aren't any subtitles. It is all voice acted, but there's not loads and loads of dialogue and, mm. and story. How this is kind of a loaded question because I know the answer to it. But how how does this game play? The actual playing of it, like Psychonauts, there's so many ideas in here that should work, but it's really badly crippled by the technological execution. Um, the main problem is. Despite the fact that you've got a jump button, and not only that, a double jump button, which should make your Burning Ranger very sort of manoeuvrable, mm. it's also got auto jumps. So if you go anywhere near the edge of a ledge, you will go floaty up into the air, and the camera will start swinging around because you're in a confined space most of the time, and you've got no idea where like solid ground is underneath you. All right. Um, now the analog, um, I used the circle pad. Like ah, the I, I should say that I, I played it w- without the circle pad, and yeah. it's bordering on unplayable. It plays like an absolute pig without the three D control stick. The circle pad makes it a little bit more um, playable, um, but it's really sensitive, and there's not a lot of travel. So, yeah, like, okay. it's really easy. Um, I mean, you can sort of nudge them into steps just by feathering the pad, but like like one millimetre on for that they'll just be running at full speed anyway um, so if there are any like sort of intense platforming situations it can be really difficult and mm-hmm. plus like I say they've got the double jump because they've got their sort of jetpacks on uh-huh. and there's a bit of assisted jumping in there as well so sometimes randomly like you're trying to sort of nudge yourself slowly to get on like a sort of narrow ledge and the game will just decide no you want to be sort of further along and so you'll sort of rock it much further into the screen than you were expecting James. and it becomes incredibly frustrating no more frustrating than um, when you reach later levels now like I was saying like the like the sort of first three levels are, are based around this idea of exploring finding victims transporting them away um, and that's great like it's 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 really good fun um, it's a great idea it is made difficult by the fact that there's no map. No. So it's very, very easy to yeah, get lost. All, all the environments look really samey as well, to be honest. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem as well. Like There's a lot of very similar looking rooms. But that's also a part of, um, part of the structure that they did to sort of encourage replayability. There's a certain degree of randomization in the placement and amount of victims there are any time you play any one of the <laughs> levels. Victims. Well, what else? <laughs> the... the Survivors, I guess. Well, well, well potential I guess survivors. Potential survivors. Um, uh, and like some, like certain doors that are off, like the the sort of set path that you have to travel, uh, travel are locked or unlocked depending on how many times you played through it. So, so there's a like there's more sort of uh, value in exploring once okay. you've completed the game. Do you get stuff like upgrades for your weapons or your? No, unfortunately not. None of that. that that's so you, what you start the game with is what you end the game with. Yeah, and all the characters play the same. Like I say, you've got the same two at the start. If you complete the game, you get um, passwords to play as like the any of the support teams. Mm. But there's no difference. And even when you play as any of the the support teams, there's no dialogue any for them. Drinks. Any any bosses? Like there are bosses. Um, this is the thing, like the way the um, levels are structured. Like the first three, like I say, you've got these big um, environments, 
and there's like a linear way through all of them. And then at the end, it kind of abandons the rescuing thing and it gives you like really sort of standard Sonic Team 3D bosses mm-hmm. that, I mean, I love Knights, but the bosses are really like the least interesting part of it. And these are very similar to Knights sort of bosses, like big monsters that come out in nowhere. Uh, the whole The whole game is, is very Knights-ish in terms of, you know, you can see that they were thinking the same sort of things when they made both those games. Yeah. Um, the settings are kind of interesting. Like the first one, the first area you got is... I'm not even sure what the first area actually is. I think it's like um, it's like a bio lab. Yeah, there's scientists in it. Yeah, uh, and at the end, like you find out that one of the scientists like experimented on a plant and made a giant monster, and when that mm. escaped, that's what caused the fire in the in the lab. The second one's like um, an aquatic research park in New Zealand, uh, where only one voice actor seems to have even attempted a, a New Zealand accent with uh, hilarious consequences. Uh, but like it's also a theme park, so there's loads of kids that are are trapped in there. But in the end, like there's uh, your final boss is like a big mutated fish thing, which is going around in a circle. It's very. You should nice. probably guess what these bosses are going to be like. Yeah, um, and then like this is when like the 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 storyline starts to kick in. Um, at the end of the second uh, level, you get told that somebody sent a signal to a satellite that was being decommissioned and had been hit with a, a, a meteor. So you go up into space to find this uh, uh, satellite do, and like get all the, the workers who are trying to decommission the satellite off there. And then, the f- and then at the end of that episode, a bigger satellite comes on and starts absorbing the smaller one. And your character gets stranded in this sort of like alien structure. But there's no hostages on this, no hostages, no victims on this one anymore. So it's just like the linear gameplay and like the fire doesn't really matter. So it's basically the fourth level just so sort of what, throws away. Why do you have to pair out the fires then? Just because, because that's the gameplay. Because like um, instead of being Chris, like your normal sort of comms officer um, telling you where to go, there's this like sort of faraway psychic anime girl voice telling you where to go. And you get through, you get to the end and she explains that... Um, this voice that's in your head. When she was 16, she was diagnosed with an incurable disease and her father, a scientist, to save her, built a satellite to put her into stasis so she could go to sleep until the cure should be found. In a satellite, not on Earth or anything like that, in a satellite, because that's where you have to go to be in stasis. Mm -hmm. He also, in order to keep her safe, cloned his consciousness into the um, uh, security computer Okay, uh, and then over the years, it gained sentience and uh, started grabbing debris from around it in space to make a larger and larger object. And now a cure has been found on Earth, so the spaceship is trying to return to Earth. But now it's too big, and it'll explode on impact with Earth or something. It just doesn't make sense, and it means like the whole last level is you running through this weird alien environment to try and find this lassie's cryo chamber or something like that. And that's all it is, and it like it completely abandons all the gameplay elements that make the first three levels like fun, despite the control issues. I like, feel like I feel like this game may may peak with the intro. To be honest, <laughs> um, the intros the, the intro's, intro's pretty, pretty good. Pretty I good. mean, it's nicely animated. Good tune as well. 
raging, raging tune. Um, I like the bit where he says, uh, just do it, just burning rangers. That's my favourite bit. My favourite part is the, the English dialogue, that, well, the English words that come up. I have to imagine they were the same words. Like, I don't think they were translated for the Japanese version, but the words that come up to build the tension are, sense a split second, treasure the life, have goddess on your wings, Burning Rangers. Good, good. That's a motto and a half. (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah, I don't know what to tell you guys. I do think you should play it because I think you should play the first three levels and try and get beyond the fact that the graphics are very glitchy and there's loads and loads of clipping and the characters don't do much and the voice acting isn't great and it's a little bit ropey and difficult to play. But, But... But the core is there. There's an idea there that's criminally underexplored in games since and it's actually really similar to Knights in that in that regard that you've got a really genuinely different gameplay mechanic that was sort of hamstrung by being on a not very popular console that wasn't really technologically capable of executing it but really somebody should have taken this ball and run with it once once we got to the stage where we're at now. It's a great concept it's a really good concept and you know if they just like Kept like like the the sort of weird anime space faring storyline doesn't need to be in there. If it was just a game about rescuing people, it'd be brilliant. Right. If there weren't any bosses, if there was just sort of like more and more intricately designed environments that you have to traverse in your actually controllable jetpack, it would be brilliant. But at the moment, you're just sort of replaying it as like looking at like a half formed idea and wondering about what could have been. How how can people play this now? Is there? Any re-releases, any ports? No, no. It's, so you have to buy a Saturn. You have to buy a Saturn. Burning Rangers is not cheap either. I is it not? No. no, it's not not a cheap game to buy second hand. Oh dear. And I, I would say, like, a, like, like, just in order to make gifts easily, it's easier to like make gifts off of um, ROM emulation. I don't know what it's like on the on the PC, but emulating the Saturn on the Mac is impossible. The Saturn is n- notoriously hard to emulate. So uh, good luck with that, guys. <laughs> Ah, the humble Game Boy, one of the cornerstones of Nintendo's early campaign of games console dominance and the blueprint for pretty much all handheld consoles since. I'd like to think most of us had one. It kept us company in the back of the car on long journeys. It came to school with us on Friday afternoons when we'd organised Pokemon battles with our mates. It was our first digital camera, our first printer, and we loved it. For a lot of us, the familiar grey bulk of the DMG01 and its welcome and startup ping was video games. Well, as long as we had an endless supply of AA batteries and a decent light magnifier. So come with me on a journey back through Tron-like cyberspace box art, to a time of dot matrix with stereo sound, to the time of the Game Boy. I know you're going to dig this. <laughs> Regular listeners will know how much One More Go loves Gunpei Yokoi, and the Game Boy was quite possibly his greatest gift to the world. Released in 1989 and created by Nintendo R&D 1, the Game Boy was a successor to Nintendo's Game & Watch line of handhelds. The DMG01 was the start of a 14 year legacy that saw the Game Boy family of consoles sell around 119 million units worldwide. That's a lot of Game Boys. The Game Boy saw two major revisions and one major successor across its lifespan. 1995's Game Boy Pocket, a smaller, lighter version of the Game Boy, 
1997's chiptune favourite Game Boy Light, which is a rather self-explanatory backlit Game Boy Pocket, and of course, the Game Boy Color. Well, all that's very interesting, of course, but what's a games console without games? You see, the Game Boy, much like the SNES, much like the NES, like the DS, in fact, like most Nintendo consoles, has an unfathomably good game library. In fact, including Game Boy Color games, the list of titles is staggering, easily over a thousand. But, of course, on one more go, we're more interested in quality than quantity. So, you know, what were these games? Well, there are, of course, the big guns. Highest seller Tetris, platforming classic Mario Land, worldwide phenomenon Pokemon. But the most exciting thing about the Game Boy library is that right now you could go and find a hidden gem. There are untold gaming riches awaiting you in that Game Boy back catalogue. I'm not going to list every single Game Boy game I've ever played and liked, but for any newcomers listening, there are some obvious jumping on points. Uh, we got the Mario Land series, the Pokemon series, any of the Game Boy Kirby games, especially Pinball Land. One of the numerous exceptional Zelda titles, Link's Awakening is one of the absolute best games in the whole Zelda series. The Game Boy has a Goemon game, a Metal Gear Solid game a numbered Metroid sequel, a whole bunch of Final Fantasies. From Miyamoto obscurities like Mole Mania to latter-day masterworks like Shanty, there's something for everyone. Not really, I mean, if you like taking photos, it's got a camera. What about some of these obscurities though? Well, here's a few. Wario Blast. What can you really say about a Bomberman game featuring Wario? I've just said it. I've just said everything that needed to be said right there. What an incredible concept for a game. Can you imagine if they announced that now, a Bomberman game starring Wario? There'd be folk partying in the street. They'd declare a national holiday. Wario Blast is the sort of forgotten gaming miracle that I want to try and bring more attention to. Pretty much any combination of anything you're into, there's a high chance it's a Game Boy game. For platforming fans, why not give Trip World a shot? A 1992 Hudson effort reminiscent of their exceptional NES platformer gimmick. You play as Yakupu, a kind of shape-shifting bunny on a quest to retrieve the flower of peace. It's a beautiful wee action platformer soundtracked by Mega Man composer Minami Matsumi. Wonderful. How could I not talk about a shmup? You got your Gradius, your Darius, your Parodius. You got you got those all on Game Boy. But I've really fallen in love with uh, Chikyu Kaiho Gunzass. It's a vertical shmup with parallax scrolling and sprites to absolutely die for. Responsive controls and lightning fast action make it a must for any shmup fan looking to try something they may have previously missed out on. I hope at least a few of those have piqued your interest by this point. I hope I've renewed your enthusiasm for sniffing out Game Boy belters. The question now is, of course, what are we going to play these games on? Well, it just so happens I've got a DMG01 right here, so we'll fire it up and we'll see if the original Game Boy is still a viable handheld in 2014. There we go, just fire that up. Pokemon Yellow we've got in here. There's the wee Nintendo logo, there he is. No, that. That doesn't look great. Let's try and adjust the contrast. Nope, that still doesn't look great. Can you really see it? Oh, there he is. There's your old mate Pikachu doing a karate kick or whatever. Can you really see him? Well, it sounds alright, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds pretty good. Let's see what. What? Jesus Christ. Sorry? I'm going to hear that again. Fucking right, nah, right, nah, nah. And as much as I love the Game Boy 
playing on one these days admittedly isn't a great experience. I don't know how we managed the handheld gaming pre-backlights. I can, I can only guess it's the reason we're all going to go blind in our 40s. Fear not though, there are always options. In 1994, Nintendo released the Super Game Boy, a magnificent bit of kit that lets you play Game Boy and Game Boy Color games on your SNES. All that 8-bit joy brought to the big screen, and in colour no less. To give them their credit, Nintendo have always done a great job of breathing new life into their back catalogue, and Game Boy games have always had great support in that regard. The Game Boy Advance, of course, can play Game Boy games. The GameCube had its own version of the Super Game Boy. The DS and the DS Lite can even play Game Boy games. And for used super modern types, you can pick up a reasonable selection of Game Boy games on the 3DS Virtual Console too. Now here's normally where I'd make a case for emulation, and of course if emulation is your preferred method, there are plenty of options out there. In fact, only a couple of days ago, a resourceful soul named Ben Middy has created a, an HTML5 Game Boy emulator which you can use on mobile browsers. For me personally though, I'd, I'd rather stick with game packs than startup pings, you know? Game Boy games are cheap, you can pick up a cartridge copy of Kirby's Dreamland for as little as a few quid on eBay, and with the Game Boy being a region free console, your options are as limited as your stuff lust when it comes to buying. My particular favourite way to play though is the Super Game Boy. I'll never forget how much it blew my mind the first time. Game Boy games on your telly, jinx. But surely some of you guys have still got a DS Lite kicking about. It's time you spent some quality time with your Game Boy again, because it's your friend. It loves you every bit as much as you love it. And in an age of cynical mobile gaming and microtransactions, you can find yourself having much better bite-sized gaming experiences by taking a trip to the distant, mysterious past. Do me a favour, at least have a look at a few Game Boy games. If you're a newcomer, get a chance. If you're a veteran, take some time to re-explore some titles you might have missed. The Game Boy and its colossal collection of games are uniquely charming and satisfying elements of gaming's past that are well worth your time. You wonder if Gunpei Yokoi ever suspected that he'd bring so much joy to millions and millions of people. But he did, and you know, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say thank you very much for that Gunpei. We love you, One More Goal loves you, and more importantly, we love your wee grey box of magic. Smashing. For more information on the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color, I highly recommend checking out Racket Boy's guides, which you'll find on racketboy.com. So I had an enjoyable but flawed experience this month. What was your experience like, Barry? Enjoyable squared, it was well good. I played uh, Kirby Superstar for the SNES. And I know I've done a lot of SNES platformers, and I promise I'm not going to do any more for a while, but this one was really worth doing. Especially since there's a new Kirby game just on the horizon. I was like, hey, let's talk about one of the finest Kirby games, one of the finest SNES games. Yeah, something that... I mean, I think when people think about Kirby, they'll, they'll think about the swallow and the enemies and using their abilities, and that's in there. But my word, this does so much more with the formula. This is this is an exercise in how you can just revolutionise the structure of a game. Mm. Not just a platform game, just any game. Kirby Superstar, uh, known as Kirby's Fun Pack over here, is the way it's the way Nintendo do things, P-A-K. Um, but it's not a great name, really, Kirby's Fun Pack. No. I think most people know it as Superstar anyway, so for the purposes of this review, we're going to refer to it as, uh, as Kirby Superstar. Um, interestingly known as Kirby Super Deluxe in Japan, which uh, maybe makes Kirby Triple Deluxe make a bit more sense. Oh, yeah. 
is it is it was released in PAL territories in January of 1997 this is two months before we got the N64 which is important to note so really right at the end of the SNES's life cycle which is why squeezing every drop out of that gravy machine I managed to pick up this game new in Asda for 4 99 do you believe that <laughs> at the time I didn't even know what it was and this is why this game for me is so fondly remembered you, you, you play a game this good and you're like for a fiver and you didn't even know what it was and you're like shit man obviously I knew who Kirby was but yeah. I never heard anything about this game which so, is like, your, your, your order of realising that you should own this was Asda Kirby five pounds Barry racing to the tills aye and then now you look at it and you realise that of course it was directed by Sakurai it's a HAL game like every other Kirby game produced by Iwata and Miyamoto what a team that is like three of the three of the most important people in the history of Nintendo there working on this game Superstar like you said structurally interesting uh, it's a collection of nine different sub games released under the one the one Superstar banner uh, it's a mixture of you know the usual sort of Kirby platforming experiences and mini games yeah um, so for the purposes of this I'll refer to the I'll refer to them as sub games mm-hmm. but when I'm talking about mini games you know that I'll mean traditional mini games um, Superstar also debuted a lot of features which are now sort of staples of the Kirby series um, in the actual ter- in terms of gameplay Kirby retains all his usual abilities from earlier, earlier games floating and swallowing and spitting out air and stars aye, and sucking up enemies and that um, the main ability Kirby sounds like a right dirty bastard when you get right down to it doesn't it he is the main ability, as you probably know in most Kirby games and indeed in Superstar, is the copy ability, mm-hmm. which is where you swallow an enemy and you gain that enemy's specific ability. Um, in Superstar, though, um, his cosmetic appearance changes when mm-hmm. he gets a certain ability. This, Mostly this, this, hats. Yeah, this was a new thing. Like, his colour changes and he gets a hat. So, that, I mean, that, that, that was a big thing. E- each... Uh, each Copy ability has its own corresponding strengths, weaknesses, command list. Um, There's 25 unique copy abilities in Kirby Superstar. Uh, some, of, some of my favourite ones, uh, the yo-yo is pretty Yo-yo's awesome. Yo-yo's great. Uh, Cook, I really like Cook. I haven't he, seen that. He gets out a big pot and bangs a spoon and all the enemies on the screen go into the pot and turn it into food. Nice. Which is pretty good. Uh, Parasol and Hammer are favourites of mine because they're kind of the most traditionally Kirby, I think. Um, Quite enjoy uh, Plasma just for the uh, aye. sparks. Looks really great. Yeah, Plasma has an interesting control mechanism too, where the more the more you run about, the the more charged your attack is. Like you're sort of building up static electricity. It's pretty cool. And the most sort of genuinely different one, the wheel. Aye, wheel. There's a, a, a reason why wheel is doubly awesome. Um, another new feature they added in Superstar is, is helpers. This is one of the main ideas behind all the all the, the sub-games present is sort of this two-player cooperative gameplay. Um, if Kirby has a copy ability, you can press the X button, which triggers a second player to appear, known as a helper. Um, this exchanges for the current ability you've got. So say you pick up a fighter ability, you press the X button, you lose your ability, but it creates a, a helper that has the fighter ability. The hat sort of turns into a dude. Aye, it turns into the the end. Whoever the 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 ability belongs to, it turns into that enemy. Yeah, a friendly like two player. And if you don't have a two P present, it's controlled by the AI. Yeah. And the AI is actually good. Yeah, it actually really helps you out. And one thing, 
you you quickly another reason why the helper ability is so good is because how good the character designs are. Mm-hmm. Like with every Kirby game, this looks good, but this looks particularly good. I mean, it came out on a thirty-two meg SNES cartridge, so they had the ability to make everything look good, and the sprites look good, the backgrounds look good. So many animation frames for everybody as well. Aye. So much personality. The enemy, the character design with Kirby games are always good, but this far and away has such a wealth of different characters different enemies because i mean there are enemies that don't even have copy abilities so there are easily 30 40 different enemy types in the game and uh with the wheel helper you can really interact with them in a so right i mean the, the wheel ability you uh, when you have it as an ability you know you turn into a wheel you race around back and forth but when you have the wheel as your helper you can jump on top of him and become like biker kirby and he has like sunglasses and a wee bandana on that it's it's so kawaii, but it's. It do, I mean, it, it gives you. It doesn't give you any ability that you don't have as Wheel Kirby, but it's just another thing they added that they were like, "That'll be awesome if we put that in." So adorable. So getting on to the the actual main sub games, the first of these is uh, Spring Breeze, which is a, a simplified remake of Kirby's Dreamland, um, only with the added gameplay features of Superstar. And after Spring Breeze, you get Dynablade, which is um, a slightly slightly. It's the first sort of proper game of Superstar, but it's still quite short, quite easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, the like you said, you get the Great Cave Offensive, um, which I'll come back to because the Great Cave Offensive is kind of a kind of kind of the black sheep of all the games. You but, think it's a black sheep? Because I kind of got the impression that's where all the longevity is. But we'll come back to that. Stay stay on the edge not. of your seat, guys. The main, the sort of three main ones, the three main games in Superstar are. Uh, Dynablade, Revenge of Meta Knight, and Milky Way Wishes. Um, Revenge of Meta Knight is a, a direct follow-on from Dynablade, and the thing that I like the most about it is it plays like one long action sequence. It's not really split into levels. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, basically, you, you play as Kirby, and you're trying to destroy Meta Knight's airship, the Halberd. Um, the thing I love about it the most is, like, like I said, it plays like an action sequence, but the way it's paced is amazing. There's hardly any breaks in the action, and you know, through your whole sort of your trip um, you're almost being commentated on by the crew of the halberd they mm. pop up down the bottom of the screen wee dialogue windows kind of like Star Fox yeah, and they're constantly talking to each other but they're they're bickering like they're they're, they're they're scared that they can't stop Kirby they're like coming up with clever plans to dump him in forests on the other side of the map and things like that and he just keeps coming it's so distracting like I'm constantly dying because I'm reading the dialogue rather <laughs> than actually watching what's happening on screen because it's not like this dialogue is, is a break in the action it's constantly happening um, so also the crew does include the greatest Kirby character ever Sailor Waddle D. <laughs> so good um, the, my favourite part of uh, Revenge of Meta Knight was the last sort of part where you know you, you go into a, a room and like Meta Knight standing on a platform with his back turned and there's a sword stuck in the ground and you take it out and you have a sword fight with him which is good enough but then there's like a kind of motorbike, uh, motorcycle chase scene yeah to get off you, the exploding airship well good you jump on your wee wheelie mate and you have to you got a time limit and you have to jump off the airship and it's a really short condensed game like it's one long level it's, it's so great like mm-hmm. you could totally go and play it again like so there's replaying the fact that it's short enough that it's fun enough to play again yeah this um, is the sort of thing like if, if it wasn't for control issues this would be perfect mobile gaming 
uh, Kirby's Fun Pack because everything is so compact and short bursts. The control, like, it makes use of every button on the SNES pad. And Kirby games, they have a very refined control system in terms of, like, double double tap to dash and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I don't think it would translate well to mobile at all. I don't think it would work. It wouldn't work with touchscreen controls, but... Um, the structure's there we just need to work on that that age old problem Um, the Great Cave Offensive like I said is sort of the black sheep of all the games it's it's a kind of strange almost Metroidvania Wario Land type Mm -hmm. of game where you're in sort of one long sprawling but still kind of linear um, labyrinth it's like an underground maze and you can backtrack between areas but the the whole sort of aim of it is you have to collect treasures yeah there's 60 treasures isn't there I, I mean the the good thing about the treasures is like most of them are items from other Nintendo games like some of the best ones are you get the Triforce you get the Screw Attack from Metroid you get the, the Bucket from Wario's Woods uh, Captain Falcon's Helmet you know yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff um, and this is it has the same kind of copy, helper, platform and action, but there's a, a slight puzzle element involved too, where if you want to get all the treasures, there's a certain degree of backtracking once you have the right copy abilities involved. Most of them are sort of like hidden away behind, like uh, like quite often you'll get blocks with bombs sitting on them, and if you explode them, then it'll like set off a chain reaction to, to release another part of the level mm. and things like that. And it's also about finding the, the right hidden door to get you... To the, to the right vantage point to, to backtrack. It is very Metroidvania. There's there's a lot of... There's there's certain moments in Great Cave Offensive, though, that are just... They're, they're just breaks from, you know, the dunge- dungeon crawler stuff, like the bosses, for example. One of the best bosses you fight is, like, a computer virus boss that appears as a series of, like, command windows from an operating system mm-hmm. and it plays out like a kind of old-school menu-driven RPG battle. Yeah, it's almost like a text adventure. Yeah, maybe. yeah, I mean, you're still playing as Kirby, but, like, you know, a slime monster will appear in the window and it drops down and you can attack it and then it goes back up and you can't attack it, but it can attack you and it's like a weird kind of turn-based RPG thing. It's, the, the, my favourite thing about it is everything that happens in that battle is, is like it plays out in text on one of the other windows mm-hmm. like you have an HP counter and you know you pick up an item and it'll say like oh Kirby got blah blah ability yeah. and then when you beat that boss as well you're treated to like oh Kirby got a level up and it lists all the stats that mm-hmm. Kirby's stat increased like 2 plus appetite and stuff yeah, like that yeah they're all like love and cuteness aye ah, totally <laughs> it's just moments like that I mean such a such a wonderful idea that just you know, oh, because c- your average Kirby game, who are the bosses going to be? Like Wispy, Poppy Brothers, Lo Lo Lo, and La La La. And then this, you're like, y- you never know what the boss is going to be like. I mean, there are three or four bosses in Great Cave Offensive, and they all have really kind of unique, like gameplay ideas behind them. Like another one's a kind of invisible chameleon type thing. So why are you feeling this is the black sheep? Just because it's not level based at all, I mean there are different areas to the castle but to have a Kirby that plays almost like a Metroidvania is just like See this is why I thought it was interesting like, like I only played this sort of really quickly just to get a flavour of it before now um, but like that sort of struck me as like you know like the the progression through the different games to get like sort of be a tutorial to build pace whatever was really interesting but it kind of felt like that would be the one that you came back to more often because you've got to explore it because you've got to get through every nook and cranny to get all 60 treasures like that felt like that would be 
you know that that would be the the meat the long the long term reason to come back. Is well, that yeah. not the case? If well, if you want a hundred percent, I mean, your CFL has a percentage. So if you yeah. want, I mean, I went back and got all all the treasures. And it's the kind of thing. It's so long that by the time you go back, you've forgotten what. I say long, it's not like 10 hours long, but mm-hmm. for one, I mean, for one long experience with save points dotted here and there, it's quite quite a long thing. But it's just an, it's an interesting concept for the Kirby series. It's, it was a very sort of, not a unique idea because it had been done before in other games, but for a Kirby game, it was just, it just always, always struck me as being, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting but slightly strange idea. Um, it's great though, I mean... As, as as with everything, it's great. Um, the last, the last of the big sub games is uh, Milky Way Wishes, which is the longest and by far the hardest of the games. The, the story behind this is um, uh, the sun and moon around the planet Popstar, which is where Kirby lives. They're, they're they're fighting each other, and a wee jester named Marks tells Kirby that he must travel across the nine different planets in that solar system um, to 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 be able to restore them. And summon Nova, which is like this weird kind of giant clock that's also a comet. This is getting a bit anime. My my attention might be waning. Milky Way Wishes is pretty pretty far out, to be honest. It's Marx is the antagonist in Milky Way Wishes, which makes him a fan favorite amongst Kirby fans. Like Karl Marx. No, no, not like Karl Marx. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um, so because that would be a departure. <laughs> that would be a departure. Um, it, it's the most. It is a departure from again from the even the other games in this. Like instead of swallowing enemies and gaining the copy abilities, you pick up the deluxe copy ability pedestals, which are collectible items. And once you have it, you can use that copy ability at will whenever. Oh, nice. So you gain all the copy abilities, and you can select them from a menu, which means that there's only certain parts of certain levels are accessible once you have certain pedestals. Uh-huh. And like this game is hard. And the way that certain levels are set up, they can all have interesting sort of gimmicks on how the gameplay works. Like the first planet you go to is four different seasons on one planet, and by going through certain doors, it's a different season. Nice. So, for instance, if you go to a bit and you can't get through it, you think, oh, I need to go back here to summer when this tree wasn't here. Then I can get past this tree and then go back to winter, and then you need to go to spring and so on and so forth. So again, when they got to Milky Way Wishes, they had even more gameplay ideas, and they were like, "Right, let's cram all this stuff in here." Also, it has surprise shmup level. Oh god, this is rubbing Barry T's stomach. Ah, it's what we, what we fucking love in a game is like any excuse for a surprise shmup level. You control wee starship Kirby flying about, shooting stars out of your wee spaceship, and then once once you've completed Milky Way Wishes, um, it unlocks a thing called the Arena. Which is basically a kind of boss rush mode, but again, the arena is kind of hard. One of the best things about Superstar, I think, is how little is reused. Mm. There are a couple of times where you see the same environments, like the same backdrops, but generally, every game has its own unique content. Like one of my favorite things is the sort of the the wee kind of HUD bar down the bottom where it shows you your health and your copy ability is different for every game and it didn't need to be they could have just made Mm -hmm. one general one but for example the Great Cave Offensive has like a kind of quite Indiana Jones looking one and then Milky Way Wishes is all like stars and stuff and I just I just love the variety in it like so this is where Iwata and Miyamoto laid the roots for Super Mario 3D World Clearly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, this is 
and it's a great example of that that Nintendo thing where they have a great little idea and it happens once and then it never happens again for mm-hmm. the whole game absolutely play it um, there are various ways to play it though mm-hmm. you, you have a decision ahead of you Um you can get it on the Wii U Virtual Console. Who'd have thought a game that you can actually get for the Wii U? Um, you can pick up the SNES version for that. But but don't do that. But stop before oh. you stick on your Wii U. Because in 2008, they released a remake for the DS called Kirby Superstar Ultra. As well as including everything that was present in the original Superstar, they added seven new sub-games. How many? Seven. Seven. Some of which are admittedly mini-games, but some are full other sub games. My goodness. Um, so, bes- I mean, b- I mean, besides that as well, it's not even a direct port. They upgraded the sprites in that. I mean, they've changed the art slightly. And a bit like Final Fantasy upgraded the no, sprites. No, they've, they've uh, not Ted Turnered the shit out of it. Nice. So, I mean, if you played any of the DS Kirby games, you know, if you've played Kirby games throughout, you know, you can think of the sprite progression in your head. And Superstar Ultra uses a lot of the sprites from the from the other DS games. So. One, the only game that we never really touched on was uh, Gourmet Race. Oh yeah, yeah, I played that once. Which I wanted to leave till the end because, even though it's, I mean, it's just a pretty basic idea. You race against DDD collecting food, but it did spawn one of the most famous pieces of Nintendo music. I think. So yeah, I mean, if you've got a DS and you can afford a copy of Superstar Ultra, if you can find one, you absolutely need to purchase it. It's one of the best DS platformers, possibly the best of the DS platformers. And even if you can't get it, please get the SNES version. But to tie this in with the Burning Rangers chat, I mean, there is something here. There is, I mean, not necessarily like the the individual ideas in the game, but the structure of it is like such a breath of fresh air. Mm. And so interesting, the idea to use like smaller games to build you up and prepare you for larger games it's great and like i can imagine if you were a kid like like if you're like you know like six years old like having like a full kirby game that you can play easily on your own and then maybe work on the later ones with your with your uh, dad helping you out as the helper and stuff mm. like that like that's got to be magical and you know even if you're not a kid even if you're just sort of wanting to have a complete experience that um just delights at every turn. This is the one. Four ninety nine, mate. Four ninety nine from Asda. Game Club. So, like we said at the top, um, a new feature we're going to be doing is called Game Club, um, which, much like a book club, will be based around the idea that we pick a game, then everyone that wants to play it plays it, and then we talk about it. Um, it's going to run every second. And we, we're full of like sort of frustrated, lonely forty-year-old spinsters, well, just desperately looking for love, right? There's only one man in this room approaching forty, and it's not <laughs> me. So. Um, it'll be running every second month, and what we hope to do is like you can tweet us, mail us, or messages about it, and we can talk about it on the show. But we also will be using a hashtag for it, and we kind of want people to talk amongst themselves about it too and then we can take a look at the stuff that's happening and talk about that on the show. We also want you to increase our social media presence by uh, making sure our hashtag trends guys, okay? <laughs> Is that how SEO people talk? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like absolutely. Uh, sorry, because there's definitely SEO people listening. I take, <laughs> I take that back. Um, 
we'll be picking the games for maybe the first and the second time but really we'd like to open it out to to, to you guys Um, and this is a feature that's only really going to work if you guys get behind it and by all means if you think it's a shitty idea then then we won't do it what I think what we'd say you will make Barry cry you will make me cry what we'd because I mean this is the whole ethos behind the podcast I'm sick of saying this because it's just like a broken record but we set up the podcast because we wanted people to play old games that maybe they'd overlooked I think what we're going to try and do is maybe pick games that we've never played but want to play. Yeah, like absolutely. Old, old games, and I think we're going to try and pick stuff as well that's easily easily dealt with on an emulator. It's not something that you're going to have to go out and buy a console and a game to actually play. So if you have moral reservations about emulators, then this feature probably isn't for you. But and I mean, certainly if you're up for it, but don't know much about it, you know, we can point you in the direct. I mean, we can certainly post links to where to get emulators. We can't do that for ROMs, obviously, but no, no. it's not it's not a difficult thing to pick up a ROM for a game. Um, so I mean, that, that that's really our plan is to yeah, is to do this. and I think well, we'll we'll see how it evolves because this is sort of as new for us as it is for you. And like we say, um, in the first couple of months, uh, Barry and I'll pick the games. The thing that we say is it'll run every two or two months, and this will rotate with our more usual feedback section. Yeah. So basically, the way this will work is uh, we're not going to we're not going to reveal the game yet. We're just going to give it time to bed in. But like next month, we'll do our we'll have our normal Twitter question, and at the end of it, we'll say which game we would like everybody to play, and then we'll. Um, Give you guys the hashtag to to get involved in the uh, in the conversation, and hopefully we'll build up something that we can then sort of report back on uh, the episode sixteen. It'll be because mm. this is fourteen, and uh, that's how mass works. And um, we will uh, we'll just have a nice old conversation. And I think the thing is, um, we're not necessarily like you say we're we're going to try and look at stuff that me and Barry haven't played before. Will be very much easier for me than for Barry, but um, we're not necessarily going to like try and make it hyper obscure. We're going to try and get stuff that everybody can play, right. and um, you know there may well be games that a lot of you have played before, and you'll be sharing with us your memories at the time. But we're, we're trying we're to get more inclusive, play, play more shmups. This is, this, <laughs> this is why you're all going to have to play shmups. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait until next week when I come in. Sorry. So the game I want everyone to play is Burning Rangers. <laughs> you just have to buy a Saturn, get a copy for like seventy quid off eBay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's what'll make it very inclusive and successful. So I that's our idea. So start thinking about if there's any games you'd like the one more go listenership to have a shot of. You yeah. know, if we try this a few times it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I mean I think it'd be nice if we all had a bit of a shared video game experience and we could talk about it and that. Because one of our favourite episodes was the episode where uh, Jim and Cammy got us to play Alex Kidd and Super mm-hmm. Metroid so as much as we can get you guys involved the better really yeah absolutely and you know we're, we're talking now about it. it'll be me and Barry picking the games to begin with but if one of you clever people comes up with a very clever idea before then then I'll ignore everything Barry says and just start playing that basically if someone tells us to do Mario Paint it's going to be Mario Paint so. <laughs> That is your lot, ladies and gentlemen. We've come to the end of episode 14 of One More Go. Just the housekeeping left to do. Just tidy up the corners, tell you about... Remind you that we'll be uh, taking Twitter questions next month. Remind you to take a look at uh, our gifts and our gorgeous new artwork that's on the Tumblr. Mm. OneMoreGoPodcast.tumblr.com To check out the Twitter at One More Go Pod. 
on the, the twitter.com and of course you can get us individually at no stopping epoch and at nickel hay and uh, yeah we'll be back next month with some more video games and a very special guest yes we will have joe merrick from bitsocket joining us next month oh that's not quite as special as i talked for actually <laughs> I to talk about sonic or shenmue or whatever it is that joe likes <sighs> Yeah, like every one of those Yakuza. Sega things. Um, yeah, but that's that's coming up, and right now there'll be some music, won't there, Barry? Yes, uh, this month I have chosen the song "Beach" from Plock, another SNES platformer. I won't talk too much about the game because I think we've had enough yeah. SNES platformer for one day. More than enough, actually. Um, 1993 SNES game made by Steve and John Pickford. Some of you may know the the wonderful Pickford brothers. With uh, music from another pair of famous brothers, uh, Tim and Jeff Fallen, of course, responsible for innumerable old school classics. Um, McBee Pete. This this one's for you, <laughs> McBee Pete. Um, this this tune is like, I mean, Plock's a pretty surreal game, but this tune is like a, a wonderful sort of blend of sixteen bit sounds with a kind of seventies prog rock aesthetic. And I really don't want to say too much about it, apart from it has a raging guitar solo in it, and really that's it. I'm just going to let the music speak for itself. So enjoy Beach from Plock, and we will see you next month.